What is going on? Welcome to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650 with myself, Jamie Dodd, and my co-host, Canucks Insider Thomas Drance, who of course also covers the Canucks for the Athletic. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota All-Star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics. Canada's favorite orthotics provider supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, what is there to say, Drancer? They, <laughs> the 3-0 lead didn't even last to the end of the first period for the Canucks. It was the speed run version of the game that we've seen so often this year for the Canucks. Ends in a 5-4 loss to the Pittsburgh Penguins. I can't imagine being a fan watching this game and earnestly rooting for wins anymore. That sounds that dev- sounds painful. It would be devastating. At, every night. Yeah. Every night it would be devastating. Like I strongly encourage anyone still tracking this team with the with like the level of attention that we do, mm-hmm. that I'm pretty confident most of our listeners do. Although sometimes they occasionally say, I don't even watch anymore. It's like, yeah, you do. You have detailed takes on every player on the team, <laughs> plus players in the HL system, but okay. I don't but, even watch anymore. And what was up with Boudreaux's deployment in the third period last night? <laughs> yeah. Separate the OEL Myers pair. I'm yeah. out on this team. I haven't watched in weeks. It's like, yeah, you have. Okay, anyway. I, I honestly recommend, like, the thing about tanking is it's not just good strategy. But it's the best way to shield yourself emotionally. From a team mm-hmm. this thoroughly inept in just about every phase of the game, especially at the moment now that the power play has gone cold and this team. So some things that I felt like were almost perfect about the game. And Dom, Dom, get this on TikTok. Okay? Get this on TikTok. There was part of that Canucks loss that felt legitimately perfect. Right? And, and the following things in particular apply. They felt fitting. In a way that, you know, uh, hits that fatalistic whimsy that the Vancouver Canucks do better, <laughs> better than just about any hockey franchise in this league. The first is that Spencer Martin so massively outplayed Casey DeSmith, mm-hmm. the Pittsburgh Penguins starter who lasted seven minutes and surrendered three goals in, in what, under two, 150 seconds? Two of them softies. Yep. Right? So thoroughly outplayed his counterpart. And was, by some measure, Vancouver's best player. On a night, he still surrenders five goals. And Vancouver's team save percentage fades below the San Jose Sharks to currently rank dead last in the NHL. 32nd out of 32. That felt appropriate. It felt appropriate that the Vancouver Canucks, having built a 3-0 lead, playing this structured Pittsburgh team that their current management group once worked for and won multiple cups with, played against that team, not just a bad, like, it wasn't just the worst game for Vancouver this season. It was, by the numbers, quite arguably, the single worst defensive performance we've seen from any NHL team this season. There have been over 650 NHL games played this year, right? Only 17 have featured a team allowing 50 or more scoring chances, which the Canucks did. 
The Canucks also, per natural stat trick, allowed 29 high-danger scoring chances against. Only one other team has allowed that many. It's the Anaheim Ducks, who did it this past weekend against the San Jose Sharks in a game they nonetheless managed to win, <laughs> which means a lot of those high-danger chances came probably in the last five minutes as, sure. the, as the game state tilted, right? They also didn't allow 50 overall scoring chances and allowed one fewer goal, okay? In combination, 50 scoring chances against 29 of the high-danger variety, this was the single worst defensive performance in any of the 650 NHL games played by every single NHL team this season. There's something direly fitting about that. There's something fitting about the fact that Quinn Hughes was plus three at five on five, scored a goal, had an assist. He actually had a good game. Yeah. Luke Shen, like that outlet pass that Luke Shen makes off of the shot that, like it's a it's a net front scramble and he quickly outlets it to Hughes. It was almost like a center back, like hitting a wing back with a, with a through ball that, that springs the counterattack. Like that created the Garland goal. Luke Shen had some good moments in that game. Ethan Bear was probably Vancouver's best skater. Like, this team's defensive issues were so isolated to the OEL-Myers pair that it told you a ton, spoke volumes about where this team's at and how hard it's going to be to build even a competent team around some of their highest paid players. Right? Bo Horvat records an assist, and moves into the top 10 in franchise scoring. A historic mark that should be celebrated. And yet Horvat does it in the midst of one of the most dispiriting performances we've seen from this brutal team this season. There's something appropriate, too, yep. about Bo Horvat sort of putting his name in the franchise record books on a night when this club plays like that, considering how he's represented this franchise through some of the leanest, most depressing years of its, you know, mostly sorted 52-year history. It was a perfect loss. And on top of it all, it actually suited this club's long-term interests, which are to get as low in the standings as you can and juke those lottery odds at this point. Surely, we all agree. There's nothing worth building around here meaningfully in terms of trying to win with this team. No, and certainly not for the rest like, of this season. And the moment, the moment you realize that, the moment you stop struggling against the reality of this situation, the way this franchise has for 10 years, it's amazing how quickly hope can return. It's amazing how quickly you can get on the right track and stop making short-sighted mistakes. It, it's truly like, if you have that come-to-Jesus moment, if you have that moment that shifts your assumption, not we can turn this around quickly, but we can't turn this around quickly, and we need to spend a few years focused purely on like 2027, 2028, on shedding salary, on accumulating futures, on, on making things brighter going forward. The moment you make that realization, the pain can stop so, so fast. It's time. It's time, and we all know it. And it's there for them, right? It's it's on a silver platter to actually, as you said, you know, as dire and dark as things are right now, there are actually some really obvious moves that you can do to start turning things around, right? To, as you said, kind of flip the script and change the conversation, change the atmosphere, right? And we had this text come in 
uh, from Tim, who says, you know, I was so happy when the Pens tied it last night. I often find myself cheering against the Canucks. Uh, I love these high-scoring losses. It's perfect, tank plus entertaining. That's from Tim. That kind of gets to what you're saying at. And there is this kind of jujitsu element, right, where, you, you know, all of a sudden you take the the overwhelming negatives about the Canucks, and as soon as you start cheering for the lottery position, they actually become positives because they go up 3 nothing, and you have all the faith in the world that uh, the Penguins are going to get back into that game. But when you look at the situation they're in, I mean, this is a perfect storm in a lot of ways for this franchise specifically to initiate a rebuild. Like, it's never going to be easier than it is right now in this moment because of obviously the Connor Bedard factor we've talked about. The team is doing what it's doing. So there's not a lot of worry that, oh, we're going to go on a run here and, and, you know, screw up our lottery position. Fans are exasperated. Like, fans are ticked off and furious and kind of apathetic, but also just more really, really upset with what they're seeing. I think it would absolutely be embraced. And you've got a bunch of trade chips you can play. It's not as if, you know, it's not as if, okay, we'd love to rebuild, but what are we going to do? You're going to trade three really valuable UFAs if you decide to rebuild. You could have four of the top 40 picks in this upcoming draft. Quite easily. I don't think that's a stretch at all when you factor in your own second round pick that you still have, which could easily be, you know, bottom seven, bottom eight, something like that. Like four in the top 40 is not out of the realm of possibility in any way. There you go. Like you you need to restock the prospect pipeline. That's a pretty good way to start doing it. Well, especially if you have four in the top 40, trade one of them down. You could have five. Yeah. I mean, the, the possibilities are endless once you stop digging. Right. And and you're right. You know, let's add a rallying cry to our long list of rallying cries. If not now, when? Yeah, it right? does. It does feel like now or never. To it's a certain it's degree, now or never. Right. You, you've got this team that we're watching. And no, not only are they not good enough, but they're too expensive. There's no prospects coming. Yes. Let's go over the, the checklist. checklist. The no, but, checklist. But, but you have to like really. There's a reason I keep repeating it. A, you know me, I love developing yes, themes. Yes. But but B, like all of this needs to sink in and be accepted, right? Until you change your assumption that this can be done quick. Until that happens, the like <laughs> the losing will continue until fan morale improves. <laughs> you know, and and here's what we're looking at over the next two weeks. The Canucks are going to play this gauntlet schedule, finishing it out, right? You've got Tampa Bay twice still. You've got Florida, who are going to be hungry and looked pretty good against Colorado last mm-hmm. night. They're going to turn it around. We all know it. You've got Carolina on the second leg of a back-to-back. Good luck. If this team plays that, defense like that, they're going to give up 70 shots. That Carolina game, so not just the second half of a back-to-back on the road, but actually a two-hour earlier start time than the previous game, right? So like a 22-hour turnaround from the Florida game, and specifically with how Carolina plays and how it gives this Canucks team fits. Like, is there a worse possible game on the schedule for the Canucks? You well, know what I mean? That might be the ultimate schedule loss for this team. And think about it from management's perspective. You go into Pittsburgh and get embarrassed like that last night, the the city that Jim Rutherford won two cups in, mm-hmm. and then you lose in Carolina, the team that Jim Rutherford literally brought to North Carolina and won a cup with? I'd take that personally. I, I just would. I just know myself. I would. I don't know if Jim would. I would. And then, and then they're com- going to come back, and the schedule stays difficult. And then you've got the Chicago Blackhawks game. Yep. And then the Columbus Blue Jackets come to town. Okay, meaning that the Wizard of Port Moody, 
Kent Johnson comes to town. And let's not forget here, right? The Vancouver Canucks played four games after the regular season had concluded during the 2021 season. So the year they end up with the Gunther pick, mm-hmm. right? And they got five points from those remaining four games where it was like, not only were they locked into not making the playoffs, they were locked into the bottom of the Canadian division. They couldn't even like pass Ottawa with a good performance. Like these games, four of them, one against the Oilers and three against the Flames, had literally no bearing on anything. And yet this organization, in their love of shortcuts and false hope, and their love of winning games late in the season, went all out. Played like Alex Edler 24 minutes, like did went all out with a coach who wasn't extended beforehand. Yeah. And took five of the remaining eight possible points from four games that meant absolutely nothing. And those points are the difference. Forget lottery luck or whatever. Those points are the difference between being in a position to select a player like KJ, who by the way is sick, and and having the ninth overall pick, which the club ends up trading for Oliver Ekman Larson. The next day, you're going to have the CHL Top Prospects game, which features four Vancouver and or, for the, for the Benson people who keep saying, he's from Chilliwack, whenever I bring him up. Or, from the greater Vancouver yeah, area. Lower, lower mainland. Lower mainland. You're going to have four players in that game, including the no-doubt surefire number one overall pick, Connor Bedard, big Canucks fan. Andrew Kristall, big Canucks fan, local kid, actually Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Benson, Chilliwack, Zach Benson. And then Lucas Dragasevich from Richmond, a right-handed six-foot-two defender. The Canucks will be playing in Seattle that night, but the future of this team should be on display in Langley that evening. Without question. If you're not going to do it now, when? We know what this team is. This season, like this season isn't on the precipice, it's over. It has to be now. And, and, I have no idea what the argument, like, what the argument, the thing about the NHL, I was thinking about this a little bit today. The thing about the NHL, and I've talked a lot about the cyclical nature, right? People like to say, rebuilds guarantee nothing. Mm-hmm. Which is true. 100% true. Losing in but- the NHL, however, is fleeting if you lose big. Winning in the NHL is fleeting. You know what's consistent? Mediocrity. Right? It's not that losing or it's not that rebuilding offers no guarantee that's true that's not the problem the problem is the certainty that this team will remain stuck for another like how long does this team have to retool on the fly before you accept that like this for sure doesn't work yeah that uh, that other approach might not might not especially if you do it wrong but we know for sure what won't work what will keep this team in this state forever and that's the approach that we've seen this club take since, well, what, 2013, 2014? Yep, pretty much. It's awful. And it's time for it to end. Just stop digging. And if you're not going to stop digging right now, when? If the, when the, will you? And the thing about, uh, the thing about well, there's no guarantee. Yeah, of course not. It's really hard to win the Stanley Cup. If there was one guaranteed path to win the Stanley Cup, everyone would do it. And it wouldn't be hard. Only one team wins the Cup every year. It's super hard. If you're looking for a guarantee... A guaranteed strategy, you're going to be waiting an awful long time. It's hard to even win around. Truly, it is, especially with the way that the NHL playoff format's structured. 
You know, I I saw Jason Bruff just moments ago tweeted a good Brendan Shanahan quote from the day mm. the or sorry, it's not a Phil Kessel quote. Yeah, Brendan Shanahan quote from the day that the Toronto Maple Leafs traded Phil Kessel to the Pittsburgh Penguins and retained salary for six years to do so. Brutal. And set the Penguins up, by the way, to win two straight Stanley Cups. And yet, won that trade. Yep. I mean, it was a win-win. Yeah, P- Pittsburgh's not exactly sad about doing the trade. No. But it, was, it worked out for both sides. It worked out for both sides. He said, this is really about a recognition on our part that the group we assembled here wasn't good enough. Ooh, the recognition. We are here to build a team that is capable of winning a Stanley Cup. There are no shortcuts. We've created a lot of cap space to give us flexibility going forward. It's our job to turn picks into prospects and prospects into productive Leafs. That will take time. That uh, You can't summarize it better than that. And, and people will say s- stupid things like, well, the Leafs haven't won a playoff round. Yeah, you're right. That doesn't make the moves they made to get worse and accumulate in 2015, roughly, roughly at the same time that the Canucks began the retool on the fly mm. under Trevor Linden and, and Jim Benning. For, for one year at the bottom of the standings, the Leafs have gone on to build a top five team in the NHL by point percentage in, in the eight years since. They, they only spent, like, obviously they were bad for a few years unintentionally, but they were only unintentionally bad for one year. One year they land Austin Matthews, that's luck. But they were at least guaranteed one of the top four players in that draft class. That was a loaded draft class. You might remember Dubois, Kachuk. As long as you didn't pick Yolevi, you did really well at the top of that draft. And, I mean, that's a a model worth following, despite the lack of playoff success. Top five in the NHL by point percentage? We'd take that. We'd take that even if it came with annual spring frustration, which, guess what? It... That, that's what comes for 31 does. NHL teams. It often does. Yeah. Like, that's how you turn a, a franchise around. That's what this team needs to do. Shanahan couldn't have put it more succinctly. Like, that. that's it. That's the approach. There, there's no other answer here. Surely we agree on that at this point. We'll see. We'll find out. We'll find out because this is exactly, like, as you said, if not now... When it really it does feel have that now or never feel to it, especially when you take into consideration uh, the situation with the coach, right? With Bruce Boudreaux, you know he's not going to be around long term. Like there are so few, there are so other than I obviously. Love, I love bringing up the Leafs because everyone <laughs> turns all rash. Leafs haven't won Jack. Jack spelt in capital letters. The picks they made are playoff losers. You know, so is everybody. By the way, Patrice Bergeron has lost in the playoffs all but one year. Yeah. Right. Patrick Kane has lost in the playoffs or not made the playoffs all but three times. Right. Like take the greatest winner you think. And they've got a lot more playoff losses than wins on their resume. Wayne Gretzky included. Mm-hmm. Come on. Um, the Shanna plan sucks. No, it doesn't. Like you have to divorce. The black mark that is playoff failure from the ability to turn a team's fortunes around. Like I'm talking strategy. I'm not talking that you want to well, build the also, Maple Leafs. To me, the thing with the Leafs is you can separate it into two distinct eras, right? There's the rebuilding era to make them a contender, which was undeniably successful. But then you can, you can absolutely still look and critique the moves they've made since then. But oh that, yeah. But that has no bearing on whether or not a rebuild can be successful. I'm advocating for the model. I'm not advocating that the Canucks build that team. Come on. 
I'm just saying you'd rather be that team than this team by a lot. And there's one way to get there. Tried, tested, true. Especially if you're a big market team willing to juice your rebuild. Now, Vancouver has more bad contracts on the books than the Leafs did. It's going to be harder to replicate that approach. Plus, is this organization going to be willing to spend on being bad? A very open-ended question, considering what we've seen since the pandemic. But that's the model here. Like, that, that's what this team should do. Chicago, look at Chicago. Chicago knew exactly what they were going into this season, and look how much better they're positioned than this Vancouver Canucks team. And, and what's the benefit of being Vancouver over Chicago? Like, what, what's the real benefit there? Yeah. What, what's, what has... What positives have the has the organization been able to take from this season that they're going to carry forward? No. Like in terms of revenue, in terms of like, oh, we don't want a, a negative culture to set in. Like, well, that's definitely happened, <laughs> right? All of the all of the supposed reasons you're supposed to avoid tanking, they're existing, they're happening right now. But you're not getting the benefit of actually falling farther down uh, the lottery standings. Just compared chance. Bergeron to the Leafs turning off radio. <laughs> How dare you? How dare you, Dreyser? Yeah. How Lease, dare you? Lease just didn't put enough focus on goaltending. That is their biggest flaw. Tell the Colorado Avalanche in their 900 playoff save percentage last year. But even that, that's that that's a good example of my point. I think it's totally fair to criticize how the Leafs have handled some of their goaltending decisions. Like, I'm not sold on Matt Murray and Sam Sonoff to be playoff goaltenders for them. But that has no bearing on whether but, or not but a I'm rebuild also can not, work. I'm also not sold on Francois and Georgiev. Sure. And I'm also not sold on Kachetkov and... Um, whatever, whichever one of Branta <laughs> and Frederick Anderson is healthy enough for Carolina. I'm also not sold on Linus Allmark and Jeremy Swayman. I'm not sold on Martin Jones. I'm not sold on who's who's even the starter for the Vegas Golden Knights again. Dylan Lo- Logan Thompson is it? Yeah. Like what? What team? What great team is is invested heavily in that other than Tampa Bay? Like, frankly, smart teams are looking at goalies as fungible. Look across the league. Look at the teams with the best record. Vancouver has the starter and nothing else. I don't know that they have underinvested in goaltending. They got paid to take Matt Murray, who's outperformed all the guys that other teams paid for. Yeah, but my point is... We don't even know who's good year to year. What the Canuck, <laughs> what the Leafs are doing in net right now has no relation to has the rebuild been successful or not. It has a zero relationship to it whatsoever. Not just goaltending, also defense. Come on, Leafs are a loser. Lilligren and Sandine look great. Their defense has been really good this year. It, incredible. Like, they're, I, I they're not that, a run-and-gun team. I was going to say, I understand there's still te- this temptation to be like, ah, they're just finesse and no. putting up points and run-and-gun and all that. That's not how they played this but, year. But also, it's, this isn't about Toronto. This is about yes, the steps taken to build that team. And, and fans are so mad at it, so mad at the crest, that they can't even see the model. You want to be, be that team. You don't want to be Edmonton. You don't want to be wasting McDavid and Dreisaitl because you can't stick to a strategy. I'll give the uh, the final word of this segment to Tanberry, who says, I take the Leafs roster all day over what I've watched for the last 11 seasons. They have a solid roster that can win the Cup if they can get past their demons of the first round. Anyone denying that is delusional. That's from Tanberry. You can keep your thoughts coming in 650-650 as well. Brendan Batchelor, play-by-play voice of the Vancouver Canucks, will join us on the other side. It is Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Welcome.
Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drance, live from the Kintex studio. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative. Visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Our guy Brendan Batchelor is going to join us here momentarily. Of course, the play-by-play voice of the Canucks here on Sportsnet 650. We'll get his thoughts on... Uh, a performance, an inauspicious performance by the Canucks in Pittsburgh last night and uh, everything else going on with the team, what direction they're headed, and all of that. Tanbeer texts back in just to, to clarify his thoughts on the Leafs. He says, by the way, I hate the Leafs and I hope they fail, but I wouldn't be surprised if they beat Tampa this season. They took Tampa seven games last season in a very tight Game 7. So it, it's Tanbeer, wild. you know, shoring up his anti-Leaf bona fides, but also giving them a vote of confidence it's, there. It's wild. That that matchup is so set in stone this far out. It really is cool. Cool playoff format. Cool playoff format as as the Leafs get ready to load manage Austin Matthews in a regular season game tonight. By the way, yeah, cool, great, very, stuff. very good for your paying customers. NHL now joining us here on uh, Canucks Talk. He is the voice of the Canucks on six fifty. Our guy Brendan Bachelor. Batch, what's going on, man? How's it going? Good to talk to you guys. Yeah, it's good to have is you it, on. Is it Batch? <laughs> Well, I have to say that, don't I, Drancic? Absolutely not. This is the honesty program. It's it's <laughs> okay. Well, it's then, fine. It's, it's fine with. to talk to you. Like whatever. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I, I could I could take it or leave it. I'm I'm happy to talk to you. I just don't believe you. I just want to be clear. Anyway, thanks for joining us, bud. <laughs> um, thanks for having me. So last night, I mean, it ends five four. It's a one goal loss, but. When you actually watched it unfold, it was a, a dismal performance from the Canucks. How does it compare to some of the other real low moments we've seen of the season so far for you? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, obviously it was another signature Canucks game this year where they got a lead, they blew the lead, they were outplayed in large stretches of the game, they lost the special teams battle, uh, and, you know, had a had a, a valiant push at the end, but ultimately was too little too late it kind of feels like it had elements of every disappointing Canucks game that we've seen this year but um, you know it it comes back to all of the same talking points all of the same issues that we've discussed throughout the year which is you know the penalty kill hurt them last night they give up two power play goals Uh, their power play which for the most part has been good uh, obviously didn't get the job done and you know I've said this about their power play for a long time that even when they've been one of the top power plays in the league. They've always been a bit streaky, so it's you know reasonable to expect them to go quiet for a few games, and they've made some changes on that top unit in terms of the alignment, so that might take a, a little while to gel, assuming they're going to stick with it, but you know, really it was a team that had a huge opportunity in the first period in what, you know, as you look ahead at the rest of the road trip in this schedule, had to be circled as the most winnable game for them the rest of the way and by the end of the first period the penguins who i didn't think were particularly great in that game either had erased that deficit and were able to build from it and the canucks couldn't match them from that point on batch what are you seeing from the ekman larson myers pair well obviously they were split up midway through the game yesterday so i think that kind of indicates where things have been at for them as good as they were last year they've been maybe as bad this year in terms of you know Ekman Larson you know the the foot speed to me is is concerning and 
you know, there are plays where, where he gets beat because he can, you know, move. I guess you could say the same with Tyler Myers, to be honest. And, you know, I, I think when you think of a trademark play for those guys this year, I would look back at the Ehlers goal in the Winnipeg game where they both get caught on the wrong side of the net. Nobody chases Ehlers around and he has a clean shot to beat Colin Delia. It's been one of those years for both of those guys who, you know, when when they joined the organization, whether it was Myers coming in as a free agent signing or Ekman Larson as a trade chip, a lot of people thought that, you know, those moves would not age particularly well for this organization. And it's starting to look like that is indeed going to be the case. Now, obviously there's lots of time left this season for them to figure out a way to turn their games around. But, you know, as much as they were a big help for the Canucks in their second half push, last year in terms of their ability to be a decent shutdown pairing that ability has evaporated this season for one reason or another and you know it's it's getting to the point now where we talked about it on the pregame show yesterday where you know you could split them up but when you do that then you've got issues on other pairings too right like you know if, if Myers goes with Dermot is that the best situation to be putting Travis Dermot in when he's working himself back into the lineup um, you know, I think Ethan Bear and Ekman Larson have, have kept their heads above water to a certain extent as a pairing when they've had a chance to play together. But um, what it speaks to overall is the, the lack of depth and lack of options on the blue line that these are two guys that are still pretty consistently getting around 20 minutes a game, give or take, um, because there isn't a lot else there to help on the back end for this group. Batch, last night the Canucks moved to 32nd out of 32 by team save percentage on this season. Now, I don't think anyone would argue that Vancouver's goaltending's been great or even good, but has this team, from your view, calling the games, really gotten worse goaltending, like the worst goaltending in the league or, or goaltending of that caliber? Or do you think their save percentage is a little underrated here? Well, I mean... They haven't had good goaltending, let's put it that way, mm-hmm. because the the number of games last year where uh, Thatcher Demko stole the game for them or made a big save to keep them in a game that they had no business being in, you know, it's you know I, I lost count of how many times that happened last season, and Demko's play was a big part of how they were able to mount that second-half push. But you look at this season, and obviously Demko had the tough start. The team has been much more porous defensively in front of any of the goaltenders. And then you're asking Spencer Martin and or Colin Delia, who between the two of them don't even have 70 games of NHL experience, to come in and, you know, uh, I'm going to steal a line from Randeep on the postgame show the other night because I thought it was, you know, really great, which is you're not just throwing these guys into the deep end with the way this team defends. You're throwing them into the open ocean and asking them to swim. And so, you know, I, I thought there was a lot of negative feedback about the goaltending coming off the Winnipeg game. And I'm not going to sit here and, and defend the goaltending and say that it was great. But, you know, it's pretty hard to imagine how these guys could help this team based on where they're at in their careers, based, based on their individual pedigree, and based on the fact that they're facing, you know, some of the, the best scoring chances that teams give up in the league. So, you know, a save or two would certainly help the Canucks in some of these close games where they're giving up five-plus goals, but you don't give up five or more goals in 18 of 40 games 
and it just be on the goaltenders. It's certainly a more systemic issue than that. I just have to shake my head every time I hear that stat. Almost half of their games with five or more goals is is incredible. And I, I do wonder if almost a silver lining of how the goaltending has been this year, Batch, is at least it's you know we can it's one thing to kind of know oh they're being bailed out by Thatcher Demko on a regular basis, but I think there is something useful to kind of seeing it play out without All Star goaltending behind this team and what it actually looks like. I think it's almost important for us to see it and kind of internalize it as they as this team tries to uh, to fix their defensive woes going forward. Yeah, and you know I think to a certain extent this organization has maybe tricked itself into believing at times that it has a better group than it does because of the fact that they've had really good goaltending. And I look back to the bubble as a great example where, you know, Demko was superhuman in that series against Vegas. Markstrom obviously provided them great goaltending. And, you know, the previous management group sort of used that playoff run as their hat to, or as their hanger to hang their hat on saying, look, we, we can be that good team. We can double down on this group. And ultimately we can see where those things, uh, those decisions have, have led the team to this point, you know, coming off the, the Ekman Larson trade and everything that happened at the start of last year before Benning was ultimately let go. So, you know, if, if Demko was in the crease playing well right now, this would be a team that would have, you know, five, six, seven more wins probably that they do. They would be in the playoff conversation in the Pacific Division, and you might be able to trick yourself into thinking that they are a better club defensively than what we're actually seeing right now. Now, that's a two-sided coin, too, where, um, you know, we probably are seeing them in a worse light than is realistic if they were getting league average goaltending because the goaltending hasn't been good for them because it's been the worst in the league in terms of team save percentage. But I think it's pretty clear with, again, their puck management, the way they defend, how much they struggle in their own zone, that, you know, what the true Vancouver Canucks are is much closer to the team we're seeing now than the team that had that great push down the stretch last year. Talking to Brendan Batchelor here on Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. I wanted to ask you about uh, Connor Garland, Batch. He scores one of the Canucks goals last night. It's been a really, really tough season for him, and it, it's kind of a chicken and the egg thing because I can look at it and say, you know, well, he's not being put in a position to succeed by Bruce Boudreau. He's not getting the ice time. But I also don't really think his play has demanded or he's necessarily earned some of those uh, better deployments from Bruce Boudreau. What are you seeing from Connor Garland right now? And, I mean, I guess, does it fall more on the coach or the player for you this year? Yeah, I actually think he's been better the last handful of games. I think he's got something like six points in his last eight games, um, somewhere in that vicinity. And, in fact, Boudreau had him elevated up the lineup late in the game last night when – you know, they had six attackers on the ice. He was out there instead of Andre Kuzmenko. So I think that kind of speaks to the kind of game he's found over the last handful of games here from an individual perspective. And, you know, that could lead to him getting increased opportunity. But really, the reason that he's been down the lineup, to me, has been because he hasn't been the same player that he was last year, where he produced a ton of points at even strength. I, you know, I think he only had a handful of points that were on special teams at the end of the year last year, almost all of his production was at even strength and he was a 50 point guy. So, you know, to go from, 
being that kind of player, providing that level of, of offensive production to a guy this year that I believe is on pace for around 40 points, maybe even less than that, and you know was healthy scratched at one point, has been basically a staple on the third line and hasn't got a sniff at the top six over the last couple of months. Um, you know, it's it's you're right. It's chicken and egg where, you know, opportunity leads to better play. But you have to earn that opportunity as well. And for the most part, Garland hasn't been deserving of a place higher up the lineup with his play this year. Although, again, small sample size, the last handful of games, I think he's been a, a better factor or a bigger factor for them. And we'll it'll be interesting to see going forward the rest of the trip if Boudreaux does tweak his lines heading into the next game tomorrow night whether uh whether garland does get an elevated opportunity because of uh this this run of good form here over the last week or so batch one thing that concerns me the most about what we saw last night and there's a lot is that quinn hughes i thought had a really good game like if quinn hughes can have a really good game and you still look like that as a team what does that tell you about the defense? I know what it tells me about the defense, but what does it tell you about the defense and the state of it for the Canucks? Yeah. Well, I mean, I was having a conversation with someone, you know, off off air the, the last few days, and I was sort of making the point that with the way this group is constructed on the back end, if you told me that two years from now the Canucks were a much improved team and were in the playoffs and, and maybe in contention to win a round or two and, and make some noise in the postseason. And they had the same forward group, but the defensive group was completely different with the exception of Quinn Hughes. I could believe that because based on the way they've been able to produce offense this year, if they had a blue line that could play more consistently and that could be more trustworthy, then, you know, with the amount of goals they've scored, you know, I, I think, what was it not not this season but last season we came into the year talking about how because of the additions they'd made up front if they could outscore their defensive issues then they would be fine the problem with this season as we were just talking about if you're giving up five goals in half of your games then you got to score six goals a game to outscore your defensive problems that's not realistic and that's not sustainable but you know, if, if you could have a blue line that, you know, raises the level just a little bit, like they don't need to be an elite back end. They just need to be a back end that doesn't bleed chances and, and opportunities. Then it would give the Canucks a chance. And, you know, as much as we say, this is a roster that needs a lot of, of improvement and tweaking. And I certainly believe that that is the case. If their blue line was even marginally better based on the way things have gone in the Pacific division this year, they could be a playoff team. So, you know, Hughes kind of I'm sure feels like a, a man on an island there sometimes to a certain extent. And you know what? They've had good performances from Luke Shen. Uh, you know, Ethan Bear has come in and, and provided them some good minutes. So it's not all bad on the back end, but structurally right now, um, you know, it's really difficult for them in their own zone. And it does make you wonder if they're able to move out from underneath some of those onerous contracts on the back end if that's even possible with a guy like Ekman Larson and, and certainly Myers might be more movable as it comes closer to the end of his deal what they might be able to do with any available cap space they can create to tweak this blue line because you know if you look at it from that perspective and say man this is a team that scores a lot of goals produces a lot of offense 
if they could only defend, they'd have a chance to win most nights. Well, if you can find a way to make them a team that can defend even to a league average level, then with the amount they've produced this year, you could certainly see them becoming a playoff team. Batch, always appreciate the time, man. We'll catch up soon. Sounds good. Thank you. That is Brendan Batchelor, the voice of the Canucks here on Sportsnet 650. And I, I don't disagree with what Batch was saying there towards the end, but the funny thing is they haven't been a great or even a very good 5-on-5 offensive team this year either. And, you know, after the Jets game and then after um, last night's game as well, you know, there's a, a lot of people kind of throwing around, oh, it's fire wagon hockey. It's, it's just run and gun both ways with no structure. It's not like they were trading chances with the with the Penguins last night. No. Exactly. You know what I mean? It's not like, oh, hey, they give up a lot, but they're generating so much going the other way, too. It was pretty much one-way traffic. And that's one of the most surprising things. Well, the, Canucks, the Canucks are second me. in the NHL, five-on-five five by shooting percentage, right? So it's like this team resists the temptation to be seen clearly at all moments, right? Like, they're lucky offensively. They have shooting talent. Don't get me wrong. But they're the second highest team by on-ice shooting percentage in the NHL this season. Third in all strengths. Right? So, is the team converting on 11.3% of all of their shots? Meaning that goaltenders have like a sub-890 against Mm -hmm. them. It's like 8.85 save percentage when they play the Canucks. Guess what? It's not sustainable either. Even in a league where average save percentage is like 906, even in a league where you have one-shot scorers like Pedersen and company, that's probably not going to last. Like, this team's probably not an elite offensive team either, in addition to everything else. It's not like you graft some defensive solidity onto this, you know, high-end offensive group and they're going to be fine. Because part of it, like, part of it is all of these forwards, like – you know, it's not just on the defense that this team's yeah. permissive. They don't have any good defensive forwards. They play the wrong way. Now, I do I I guess the if you're going to make the argument for like improving the defense, doing the Lions work of salt of kind of fixing this team if you want to call it that or whatever. Yep. The argument you would make would be and we've talked about this before and it's just more and more noticeable every time I watch them play how little support offensively the forwards get. Because it's not as if there's not talent. For sure, you're right. You know, from the defense. So you could make the argument that it's still really hard to do, but if you bring in three solid defensemen who are good two-way guys, not only are you defending a lot better, but all of a sudden you're moving the puck more efficiently, your, your forwards are getting it in stride, your defenders can actually help out in the offensive zone, and you'll see those chance creation numbers, scoring chances, high-danger chances, all of that, improve offensively for the Canucks. That would be the argument in favor of it. Now, I still think you have a forward group that you need to significantly tweak and bring in more of that two-way talent and as well. And diversify. Yeah. Well, the most expensive things to do are to bring in new defensemen and size up front. And those are the things the Canucks need. Oh, oh, let's not forget reliable two-way centermen. Yeah. Right? Like, the problem is, is that this team, even in the rosiest view, isn't like a couple pieces away. It's like three new defensemen was what you used, yes. knee-jerk, and I don't think you're wrong, right? Uh, Third-line center, plus maybe a Bo Horvat replacement, plus some guys with some size up front. I mean, you see the difference that Studnika and, and Joshua have made. Now, like, think of a higher-skilled version mm-hmm. of that. Like, that's that's what we're talking about here. Too slight, not good enough defensively, not well-rounded enough, can't defend, can't attack, 
can't sustain zone time. Like, what does this team do well? What the the and here's the here's the real way that this all pieces together. Like to to s- sort of lock the first rant into the second. <laughs> You're going for the combo score. The com- yeah. <laughs> like when you train chain, chain your moves in Tony Hawk Two by doing like a what oh. is it, a manual between. <laughs> between oh sure, sure, yeah. I was thinking. <laughs> I like that. I was thinking about like you you know in Mortal Kombat when you yeah. land the big combat uh, or the big combo and that guy like I don't know who the guy is but he sneaks in from the corner he's like hoo, hoo, hoo. that's what I was thinking about <laughs> yeah, it's very good um the the way that this links together is that to fix what ails this team you need boatloads of cap space right like you need boatloads of cap space or boatloads of assets, or boatloads of prospects who, like, you can credibly see filling those roles in the future, right? And the Canucks have none of those yeah. things. So how do you accomplish all of the myriad things, all of the myriad areas of improvement that this team requires in a world where you're losing the third highest scoring player in the NHL, who's also your best matchup centerman, and also uh, a sizable heavy player, right? Like losing Bo Horvat opens up a gaping hole for you at second line center and in terms of like heavy net front, down low scoring. Two areas that this team is otherwise light on, right? Or or you pay him eight and a half and keep him and take further avenues of, for improvement off the table. Andre Kuzmenko, about to go from under a million to six plus per Pierre Lebrun's latest yep. reporting at The Athletic. And, and and elsewhere, <laughs> um, that further cuts off your hands in terms of your ability to you know, you're all of these moves in in a hard cap area. You're stealing from Peter to pay, pay Paul, right? And then Pedersen, and then you and then you bump into it with Pedersen. So the things this team does well, score are about to become massively pricey. There's no internal solutions coming to address the thing. There's no meaningful cap flexibility on the immediate horizon. You'll have some in two years, but most of that's going to be a proportion to Pedersen anyway. And or Kuzmenko if you do it. Not to mention Miller's contract's about to jump by two and a half. Like, you can't preserve what's good about this team while upgrading what's bad about them. You have to begin to take the areas where you have value, right? And use them to begin to address all the areas where this team has none, right? That's the logic of a, of a Kuzmenko trade. Yep. That's the logic of a Horvat trade, right? And, and and you can't afford to just, like, poison pill a Garland or a Besser or what have you. Like, you, you kind of need to accept where you're at. Otherwise, you're going to keep making mistakes. You know, a buyout, like, a buyout helps you next season. Who cares? This team's not making the playoffs next season. I mean, I guess, look, they get a new coach, they make like four home run moves. Sure, fine. I'll, I'll wait to see how the offseason plays out before I absolutely declare that. But the probability is this team's going to be in tough for a few years. You're seeing that. You're seeing that play out. So do everything you can to maximize the, the chances of us watching some fun hockey going forward. Stop struggling. Stop trying to swim against the tide. That's the only way, man. I want to talk about the the kind of timeline coming up for the Canucks and if there could actually be some of the you know much much talked about and hoped for moves 
all of a sudden on the horizon for the Canucks. A couple quick notes from the inbox, you know, talking about the uh, the the elevated shooting percentage for the Canucks. A couple people text in one unsigned. They've also feasted on backup goalies and Lee texts in, not sure on the number, but doesn't it seem like the Canucks face the opposition's backup goalie a lot? And I know our guy Bick last season when they were on the Boudreaux bump was on top of that, looking at the sheer number of times they've faced the backup. And I do think there's something to that, right? That yeah, more, not more often than not, but uh, at a rate higher than a lot of other teams, the Canucks do see the backup goalie and that plays in to the shooting percentage as well. More on the way. Keep your text coming in 650 650. It's Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd, Thomas Strance, second hour of the show here today. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net and 650 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line, the smart alternative. Visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Uh, you can get your thoughts in. And I, I, there's a few thoughts along these lines coming in, and I wanted to talk about this. You know, I, I brought it up to uh, I brought it up to Batch, right? The, you know, is Connor Garland being put in a position to succeed by Bruce Boudreaux, that thing? And you know, just looking at, okay, there's this road trip. They've already lost the first two games. Doesn't get much easier. Doesn't get easier at all, in fact, over the final three games for them. Then you've got this two ga- two days off right after, where the team comes home before they play Tampa Bay. And I don't know. I mean, we've been at moments where it seemed like this might be the case a lot with this team. Could we actually see a coaching change, depending on how the rest of this road trip goes. Because I think we're getting to the point where it's so clear, so abundantly clear, that there's no salvaging this season. It's not about trying to make the playoffs. It's not about pushing up the standings, getting on a run. It's not about that. Not likely. Not likely. 3% playoff odds per Dom decision at the moment. So I'm telling you there's a chance. Yes. Not a good one, but a chance nonetheless. Half as much as... They Less than one of, in twenty-five. They would have of getting Connor Bedard if the if the season ended today. Four percent chance. Oh, if the season ended today, they would have a six and a half percent chance. Dom Lecision currently rates them as having a four percent chance at Connor Bedard. Today is actually a big day. It's the first day in which, according to Dom Lecision's projection model, the Canucks are more likely to land the first overall pick at the twenty twenty three NHL entry draft than they are to make the playoffs. There you go. The, the, and they say we're negative on this program. <laughs> that's great news. And keep it going. So that's the argument for keeping him, for keeping Bruce Boudreaux, right? Is Well, yeah, you don't want the coach bump. You don't want the coach bump. Especially but... with how checked out this group's starting to look. Don't you – isn't there also concern, and we talked about it with the Miller-Pedersen pairing, right? Putting them together. that And, yeah, you know, he's he's breaking up Oliver Ekman-Larsen and that Tyler worried, Myers. That worried me, but boy, oh boy, did their five-on-five improvement the last two games come back to earth in a major way last night. 
to me, it comes down to one, Bruce Boudreau is, I still think, a really talented coach. And there's always a chance that he at least gets like, not, I don't, I'm, I'm not expecting a true run, but like 500 hockey for the rest of the way or something. You know what I mean? You know what, though? It just feels like there's scar tissue now. This just feels like even Boudreaux's positivity can't puncture this at, at this point. Yeah. You know, like, are you better off wooding with the coach that's got you here? For, from a tanking perspective, of course, than you are, you know, at least getting a little bit nervous that someone might turn it around a little bit. To me, you I don't think, want the bump. No, you do not want the bump. You can't afford any points. And I would absolutely not move on from Boudreaux and go out and – you know, back up the the Brinks truck to Barry Trotz or anything like that. Like, that's no, not the play. No. That, that's absolutely not the play right now. Maybe in the summer, but right now that's not the play. I would go interim coach. I, I mean, I mean I've, I've been saying this since November, it feels like. I would go interim coach Mike Yo. I, I don't think there's going to be a big bump. It's still like it's a voice they've heard, right? It's a guy who's there. It's not as if it's someone coming from completely outside the organization who's going to give them a totally new message or anything. And I think the advantage is, and again, to tie it back to the Connor Garland thing, Bruce Boudreaux is, as we've talked about at length, you know, he is coaching for his life. His back is against the wall. He is just doing anything he can to try to figure out how to win games. And that means some guys aren't going to get minutes. That means he's going to rely really, really heavily on other players. If you are going to embrace this moment, which as we talked about, feels like something of a now or never moment, you want somebody behind the bench that you can actually give some direction to, right? That can be on the same page with you to a certain degree. That can You can say, hey, we'd really like to see Connor Garland maybe get some power play time here. We'd really like to see Brock Besser maybe get some power play time because, you know, that would actually help our cause in the summer. And it just seems impossible to me that that kind of relationship could exist between the front office and Bruce Boudreaux, given everything that's transpired between them right now. But could it exist between the front office and, a, and an interim coach? Well, let's talk about Garland and Besser. Because for me, this conversation really isn't about them so much as it's about Andre Kuzmenko. Okay? So Pierre Lebrun reporting at length in The Athletic, you can go read it there, that teams are interested in Kuzmenko. The Canucks haven't decided whether or not they're going to make him available. Fair enough. He's really good. Super fun to watch. Amazing chemistry with Elias Pettersson. Tremendous find for free this summer. Mm -hmm. Contributing a ton. On a one on an entry level deal. LeBron reports that Kuzmenko, any extension for Kuzmenko starts at about six for what he calls a bridge deal. I'd call it a short term deal. I, sure. I think a bridge deal has to be a second contract. But um, well, yeah, this would be a second contract. But I understand what you're saying, yeah, like yeah, an RFA, a, a contract. second contract. Yeah, exactly, yeah. a second contract where you're still RFA. Like for me, that's what a, a bridge deal. Um, entails but a shorter term and like people a think you're the pedantic one <laughs> yeah i guess so <laughs> i can get in there with the best of them anyways go on <laughs> the problem here like how skilled do you have to be as a guy whose value is all offense to be worth six million like the bar is really high at that price point now the athletics player cards put together by dom lecision and occasional canucks talk guest Shayna Goldman suggests that Kuzmenko's providing this team with about 8.6 million in market value this season. So a $6 million deal, if he's playing like this, isn't a concern. But, you know, as we've noted, the Canucks shooting percentage is on fuego, mm -hmm. right? Um, I think Kuzmenko's been more than a passenger 
on the Patterson line. I think he's legitimately very good at the net front, but he's also twenty. He's also going to be twenty-seven by the time this deal kicks in, and six million again, really high bar for a guy who I still sort of view as like an offense-only forward on a team where. You know, for me anyway, I'd say you've got eight million locked up in JT Miller, who's mostly offensive value, right? You've got um, the Besser deal, the Garland deal. Like you've got this massive surplus of wingers who are highly paid and who are offensively calibrated and and, and who need offensive deployment to thrive. And right? There's only so much of that to go around. So, you know, part of the question that I think you have to ask yourself in extending Kuzmenko is if you extend Kuzmenko, that necessitates other moves. One of, one of which is for sure you're, you're walking away from both and trading him, which you should do anyway, but for sure you're locked into that once you sign Kuzmenko. But I also think it means that you're moving at, you know, not, not just like cut rate price, but probably like painful negative price on from Besser and Garland into a market that's depressed, into a market that's likely to be shaped by a, another year of the flat cap, at least based on what the NHL is currently projecting. Some negotiation may occur. And that's a tough spot to be. Like, I I won't be convinced, I can't be convinced, that you're not far better off dealing Kuzmenko now. He's your most tradable asset. Netting a free, high-value future for your trouble and moving on to doing what you can to slowly carefully rebuild Garland and Besser's value in the next couple of seasons when you're unlikely to contend anyway you know if, if you get if you get Besser to the point where he's expiring and are willing to retain half or launder it through you can probably get an asset mm. to me that's better than dead space retention um, you know, making a bad trade now, eating Give, a bad giving contract up an in asset. return, yeah. give, or giving up an asset, which this team really can't. You can't make another Dickinson deal with where this team's at. You can't be trading futures. Are you kidding me? You probably need to make 30 picks over the next three years to have any chance of turning this around, which means this team's going to need to add, what, 12 picks? Mm-hmm. Good luck. Good luck if you're extending Kuzmenko and then trying to figure out what to do with Garland and Besser. Would with the guys you've got, particularly because what what do you what are you expecting to accomplish in the next two seasons anyway? You think this is going to be more than a one and done playoff team in the next couple of years? And come with, on, with Kuzmenko, the other way to look at it is you know we've seen over and over again how you know a player might be worth X on the open market. But we can also know that as soon as they sign that deal in UFA, their trade value plummets, right? And for Andre Kuzmenko, he could absolutely live up to a $6 million a year price tag. And I think he could absolutely get that as an unrestricted free agent. But there's no, I don't think there's much chance that if he signs a deal like that, where all of a sudden he's making $6 million, that a year from now, his trade value is going to be higher, right? Like he would have to outperform that contract so incredibly significantly to actually up his value once he signs that deal. And that's that's a major part of the concern for me is that are you just are you falling into the trap of signing a player at their peak value and then instantly losing value the moment he puts pen to paper and having a really hard time potentially down the road moving on from the contract? I mean, you could point like are, are you just creating another Connor Garland Brock Besser situation for yourself would be my concern. Obviously, Kuzmenko has far, far outperformed 
those players so far, but are you just creating a situation where you sign a guy because that's his perceived market value and then it craters and then you're kind of stuck and you're not able to move on? Like, I think there's that's a legitimate risk when you're talking about an all-offense winger right now. Absolutely. You also just have to be more sophisticated than player good, keep him. Player bad, bad contract, move him. That's not the game at this point. That's the game when you're trying to win, right? Like, buyouts are consideration when you need the cap space immediately because you can make hay with it. This team's not near close enough to even be considering a buyout this offseason. Let's be real, right? Yeah, and look, if it was, hey, we're going to pony up and we're going to buy out OEL. Sure. And then, and then what we're going to do is call every team with a bad deal and see what they're willing to give us to take it on. Okay, I can get behind that. Yeah, you do that for two seasons, and then it comes at, that, at significant cost down the line. But you would be concluding like, hey, we're in such a catastrophic stasis at the moment that we need to take this extreme measure to juke our accumulation process over the next two years. Sure, fine. Yeah, but if it's, you know, <laughs> we're going to buy out Connor Garland because we don't think he helps us win, and then we can sign Andre Kuzmenko to an extension, like... No, that, that's not a good idea. If you're if you're doing oh. buyouts to harvest those extra assets, then sure. But if it's like because we need that cap space to improve the team next year, you know what it is? It's busy work. It's busy work. It's not meaningful work. It's busy work. It's like something that'll get the market talking and debating, and will have zero impact on this team's major like future. In fact, it'll have a ne- that's digging. That's digging. Mm. That's rearranging deck chairs on the on the Titanic. That's busy work. Unimpactful. Doesn't move the needle. That's that's the Ethan Bear trade. That's this Jack Stadnika trade. Nice players. Nice players. Don't move the needle for this team. Uh, it just is what it is. Those trades make sense in a vacuum, but this team doesn't exist in a vacuum. They they exist with the crushing weight of not just fifty two years of failure to win the cup, but in particular ten years of failure to chart a basic plan. To transition to an era after the Twins had sort of aged out of being elite. Like, we're in basically year 10 or 11 of this team no longer being a contender with no plan to figure out how to get beyond that. And, you know, like, one thing I don't think... One thing I don't think we've talked about enough is just how many errors have led us here. Like, how many errors? And and the cost of it, right? I mean... This insistence on always trying to be a playoff team, the idea that like rebuilding strategically is beneath this Canucks franchise, as you put it yesterday, mm-hmm. like all that it's cost this team, right? You, you know, you think about Jared McCann down in Seattle, and and you know what, you know what he's basically become? He's basically become like their third line rate scoring X factor guy. He's kind of like their Kessel, Alex Tuck analog. And, you know, you think about that stretch in 2017, right? The team makes the playoffs in Jim Benning's first year, 14-15, right? Nail a pick in the late 20s in in Brock Besser. And then take this massive step back. And so the organization's looking to change things up, right? Still not rebuilding. But they have the fifth overall pick. They blow it with Ole Olevi. Then you make the McCann good Branson trade, right? And it's like now McCann's a 30 goal scorer, consistent 30 goal scorer, and good Branson's like 
General Zhukov, uh, uh, the tank commander, the greatest tank commander for the Columbus Blue Jackets. Then you make the Brandon Sutter deal. And there's no coming back from that. Like, those three mistakes... Those three mistakes, though, actually caused a significant reorientation in what the organization was doing behind the scenes, right? All of a sudden, the draft process got a little bit decentralized. Guys like Judd Brackett were empowered at the expense of the general manager, right? Trevor Linden, president at the time, sort of begins to insist on a more robust, more decentralized, more big tent Mm -hmm. sort of approach. Uh, Ryan Johnson becomes more more empowered and involved in in pro scouting. Um, you've got a, a different type of emphasis for the analytics department, right? Things change, and that ultimately puts Lyndon and Jim Benning in sort of a collision course over the fate of the franchise. Like, what's going to happen next? And after the Twins retire, there's a pitch made internally that the Blackhawks model: more pain is needed. We're not ready to pull out of this. And it's countered with a plan to go after the next Sedin replacement in free agency with John Tavares being the top sort of target. The organization opts to go in one direction, the short-term direction. And the most popular Canucks player in the history of the franchise gets sort of thrown out. But, like, have we talked about enough that, like, this insistence hasn't just cost the Canucks years and years of pain, but has also led directly to, like, the official excommunication of one of the greatest Canucks in franchise history. Like the cost of this is so enormous. It's so significant. It's so self-defeating. By the way, the Canucks never even got a meeting with Tavares. (laughs) You know, and then, and then you extrapolate it along the way, right? After, after the bubble, the team drops to being a top 10 spending team, loses Tanev to Foley, Markstrom, Stetcher. Some, somehow keeps Jake for Tannen. Like, just makes the Nate Schmidt trade, which is a disaster. And after that season goes terribly, seventh in the All-Canadian Division, behind the Ottawa Senators. The team somehow decides to stay the course, extends the coach, extends the general, or not, not extends, but, re, you know, sort of decides that the general manager will stay in charge. And then they make the Oliver ekman yeah, Larson deal. I was going to say, not even stay the course, really, like. Double yeah, down. double down. Double down. Start spending again. And and spending badly. <laughs> one more year. They had one year. I before that offseason began, I remember, you know, you got you gotta just hurdle this one more year of pain and you're free. And yeah, they couldn't do it. it. That's the thing that always gets me when I look back at the last decade is there. you're right that there's a lot of individual, like we can go through the laundry list. We've done it, you know, beating a dead horse to a certain extent of the laundry list of bad moves. The thing that always blows my mind is that despite all of the poor moves, you're like reversing one or two of them away from being functional. Well, Not from being a Stanley Cup contender, but from having a completely different outlook. There's right always, now, right? there's always a path, right? Like after the 2015 playoffs, if you keep, Richardson and Benino and let Dorset and Spiza walk. You know, you're you're rolling Henrik, Bo Horvat, Richardson, Benino down the middle. You you probably make the playoffs again. Mm. Which which by the way wouldn't have necessarily been the right call. But but I'm just saying like all along the way there are opportunities to stop digging and this organization just cannot quit the act of being an excavator. 
And I think it's actually a good reminder for the present moment too, right? Because, you know, I was saying on Twitter before the show, like, and we talked about in the first segment, this is the moment. This is the moment to start the official rebuild and and seize this opportunity. And, you know, a few people replied along the lines of, well, there's nothing they can do. Basically, they're hooped, right? They can't move these deals. There's There's nothing they can really meaningfully do to rebuild. And the thing is, there's always something you can do. There's always, there's, as you said, there's always a path, even though all of these errors have accumulated and built up and, and brought the team to this point, they still have probably the number one trade chip on the market in Bo Horvat. They still have another guy in Andre Kuzmenko who could probably fetch them a legit, really good asset. They still have Luke Shett. Like, yes, there are things you can do that, and that move the needle that aren't just window dressing, that aren't just busy work. There's always steps you can start to take. And yeah, you can't you can't just look at the past and say like, well, we're on this road now. What are we gonna do? That's the passive thinking that got you here. Make the change. Well, there's two things. There's two things too that matter here. One is if you're willing to hurdle rather than spending futures or anything of future value to offload the likes of Pearson who expires after next season, Myers who expires after next season, um, you know some of those other deals. If you're if you're willing to lie in the bed you've made, benefits will accrue to you. Just just by like actually, to some extent, passivity is necessary in some areas, right? Mm. It's just that direct urgent action is needed on, in others, right? In particular, before the deadline, the three expiring guys, and then and then I think really lengthy heart to heart conversations too with like Elias Pettersson. Are you are you in for this? Yeah. That's an important one. Uh, yeah. I To bring it back to Andre Kuzmenko, somebody because somebody texted in, I agree with the trade Kuzmenko talk, but I do wonder if you tick off Elias Pettersson if you trade For sure you do. Kuzmenko. Yeah. But that's what – and we get this question a lot, right? Like, why would Elias Pettersson sign here? Is he going to resign here? Does he want out? That comes in all the time. We don't always have time to read it and get into it. My standard answer is, yes, that's a real risk. Yes, that's a real concern. But you can't let yourself keep repeating the same mistakes out of fear of that. Like, you still have to make the right moves that are going to set your team on the right track and then hope that you have the that you have the relationship with Pedersen and that you can convincingly sell it to him. But it's absolutely a risk. There's no doubt about well, it. Well, you also have some time. You know, if Pedersen's skeptical, he's still an RFA after the expiry of his deal. Right? Yep. There, there's still time. You know, if you need to show progress, show progress. Bet on yourself. Make the right moves. But but the fact is is that banging your head against a wall is just going to result in more headache and more heartache for Canucks fans. It is. Um, to bring it back to uh, what we started this uh, conversation or this segment on about the timeline, and I mean, where's your sense? And I know they're doing their their scouting meetings and their kind of organizational meetings right now, the Canucks this week. Where's your sense on like how much the team's performance right now is going to impact what they want to do going forward? Is it is it like is the die already cast and they already know what they want to do, or is it you know if things continue to go really really poorly, it's going to nudge them in a certain direction? The problem is is the problem is is that in talking to people behind the scenes, right? The Canucks management i think have a pretty good sense that this team's far away yeah it's just that their actions haven't matched that or or they've overestimated their ability to turn things around by shedding 
inefficient deals as opposed to making the hard decisions on the players with value. So, you know, I think this team internally is looked at as like, hey, you know, not a lot different from what we saw. Not a lot different from what we saw last season, but with way worse goaltending. Right? Like, internally, I think that's how they're viewed, which would suggest that they have the measure of the team. You know, everything we heard Rutherford talk about with structure and the goalie bailing the team out and, you know, this club's form, like, what's so odd about where the moment we find ourselves in is that it feels like the Boudreaux bump wasn't something the organization bought into in terms of their public commentary, and yet they doubled down on some of the players who had performed at this unsustainable level, Mm -hmm. particularly JT, and kind of end up in this mess, right? I mean, as much as we were talking about, like, the narrow path toward mistakes or, you know, if you just not extended Miller you'd have the two best assets on the trade market going into the trade deadline and heaps of cap flexibility, like, just around the corner. You know, it's it's amazing how quickly it turns when you just stop digging. Yeah. That's it. And, and again, the opportunity is still in front of them. The opportunity is 100% still in front of them to create legitimate, actual optimism here. And, like, optimism grounded in something. It's still there. So my friend Rick Dollywell loves, more than any media member I've ever met, to have hockey people tee off on the Vancouver media on his <laughs> oh, wonderful yeah, yeah, talk yeah. show, Donnie and Dolly. It's like yeah. his favorite thing to do. And, you know, we're probably on the negative side of, of programs what? in Vancouver. To, to try and, I don't know why I tried to do the Mike Halford programs. <laughs> um, we're probably on the negative side. We shade a little negative. But truly, if you've been covering this team right, I think the criticism of us is that we never have gone far enough. This is way also, worse than like, anything I anticipated. So here's the thing. I, yeah, I get frustrated with the team and I want them to rebuild. First of all, I don't say, I don't see wanting the team to rebuild as a negative take. No. Like, I don't think that's, an, I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying it's because like Bruce Boudreau is a bad coach and they have to rebuild or whatever. Like, it's not negative. It's just the best path forward for them. That's just my opinion. But also like, I don't even think I'm that hard to please. <laughs> like, you know, I would be really positive if, as I said, they had four picks in the top 40. Oh, yeah. Like, I would come on and gush with praise for this management group about how great that is. It's not It's not that hard for, to get my approval, I don't think. No. The, you, it's, it's amazing the amount of praise that will be ladled on the first executive or management team willing to put down their shovel. Just drop it. Just just drop the shovel. Tell the caterpillar to stop. Just like you don't even Tools have to down. You Tools don't even down. have to like build the staircase to get out of the hole. Just stop digging and the tone change will be amazing. Yeah. It's really really incredible. And you know what honestly, increasingly this is consensus. There's not a lot of fans at this point who are even arguing against this. Well, that, that's it's the other an, element. It's an entire fan base pleading with an organization. And the response is like, yeah, but you can't handle it. <laughs> what? What? It's all we want. It's it's yeah. wild. It would go over very, very well. Very right well. Now. Uh, final segment of the show coming up. Uh, we got a text in about Brock Besser that I want to read. If you have any other thoughts, hit us up. I want to uh, relay a note on the Bo Horvat situation from Elliot Friedman as well. Final segment, Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650.
Welcome back to Canucks Talk. Final segment of the show today. Jamie Dodd and Thomas Drans live from the Kintech studio. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative. Visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Lots of uh, of really good texts coming in right now. I wanted to uh, bring this one up about Brock Besser. It's from Brando. Came in... uh, Earlier in the show, he says Besser is currently at a 20-goal, 61-point pace over 82, even with his contract. That production should be tradable with some minor retention. And it is an interesting note. Like, yeah, he has 24 points in 32 games. It's not as if he's been a zero offensively. Now, I think you can easily point out that he's not exactly driving offense. His defensive issues are uh, very well really documented pronounced. and he, really pronounced. He's so. had a bad year. I mean, you know me. I'm I'm like very keen to defend Brock Besser generally, but this has been a very tough year for him. He's he's had some injury issues, right? Um in particular the the inability to work out for a couple weeks while he healed from that strange um sort of wrist surgical procedure that that he underwent surprisingly at the tail end of uh, training camp so look we'll see um I, I mean i do almost want to say like kudos to other nhl teams for not just looking at like hey 24 points in 32 games like let's go get this guy you know what i mean like hey good for them you're you're looking beyond point production at this uh well, everyone at is. this player Th- there are real card like that's it's part of what you have to deal with there are sharks at the yeah. table now um, but on that point about Brock Besser, I did want to relay again from your uh, athletic colleague, Pierre Lebrun, who mentioned Besser in his column uh, today, I believe, which is uh, word is that teams keep poking around on Brock Besser and are exploring it in a more realistic manner. I don't think anything is imminent, but teams are giving it more thought and trying to see how they could make it work. He also uh, name checks the wild specifically. Obviously, there's the Minnesota connection, but he also says Minnesota feels it doesn't sound like Minnesota feels it can make it work. Cap-wise, we all know about their cap problems. Well, the, the, Horvat, the Horvat option is the more interesting one because they really do want a centerman, ideally a centerman who can finish, to play with Kaprizov and Zuccarello. That sound like anyone you yes. know? Yes. Yes, it sure does. And, uh, and, I mean, you know, then they'd be in this world where they're rolling, you know, Horvat, Yoel, Eriksson, Hartman down the middle, and that begins to seem pretty interesting. Minnesota has more cap space than you'd expect, even though their um, Suter Parise straight jacket yeah, it's increases also, in cost next it, year. It's more of a, like the Horvat thing, if they're interested in doing it as a rental, it's no problem, right? I mean, oh, maybe you have sure. to get a little bit of career, but it, it, it becomes a situation for Minnesota after you talk, when you start talking about next year and beyond. And, well, and, and Minnesota also has the advantage of Matt Dumba, who, who'd be presumably sent out if they're doing something more than a rental. Right. Um. So, you know... I'd be shocked by Minnesota going after Besser just because their needs and my understanding of what they're looking for is really down the middle. Down the middle, and and makes sense. I mean, makes watch them sense. play; it makes a ton of sense. <laughs> absolute sense. They have a big hole there. But the other thing with Brock Besser is one, you know, it's interesting that his production, just from a raw points total, is not as down as you might think. The Pierre LeBron comment is interesting, and. Again, you know, we were talking about Andre Kuzmenko in relation to Connor Garland mostly uh, last segment. But, I mean, who did Andre Kuzmenko supplant from power play one, right? It was Brock Besser in that net front position. Now, full credit to Andre Kuzmenko. He's earned that spot and he's produced very well there. But, look, you trade. I, I don't think there's going to be a Brock Besser trade before the deadline this year. But if you do move out Kuzmenko, 
you get Brock Besser up to power play one in the net front. He has a hot two months. Does it become a possibility in the summer? Yeah, I absolutely think it becomes a possibility in the summer, right? And again, that's just a ca- another case of the potential benefits, not just because, hey, you move Andre Kuzmenko and you get a couple of good assets or at least one good asset out of it, but all of a sudden maybe you're in a position where instead of you know Brock Besser being this kind of intractable problem you have on your hands that you could actually hope to get something with him uh, or for him in the summer and you know add to that that chest of assets that you have the chance to bring here right now. I thought that was an interesting text in and especially paired with uh, uh, the latest reporting on that from Pierre Lebrun as well. I just think you're still going to be better off rebuilding Besser's value slowly. Now, is that even possible? Is the relationship too fractured? Mm. We know that Besser's agent, Ben Hankinson's had permission to talk to other teams about finding a deal. Um, We'll see where it goes. We'll see where it goes. But I mean, for me anyway, Besser Besser's a guy who's who you're best off managing deliberately, right? This has always been a value resuscitation exercise in in our formulation. Uh just like just like what this entire team should be going through, right? And so I, I think you can be careful on it. Let's talk I want to talk really quickly about hockey, which we don't All often right. do on this program. Sorry, Mike Alfred. What, what are you doing? Yeah. Rip it off Mike Alfred's bit. No, it's because I um I sent him his fantasy football league winnings today. Ah! So he's on my mind. You've got Halford on the brain. Yeah. <laughs> and out of my bank account. <laughs> anyway. The Canucks power play mm-hmm. has been sputtering a little bit over the last little bit. And by the way, we uh, on that point, we talked about the overall discrepancy in uh, the balance of play. It was like Pittsburgh dominated special teams. Dominated. Absolutely. Their power play looked lethal. Canucks power play could not get much of anything going. Do you think the Canucks have overreacted to Pedersen's lack of goal production by swapping him and Miller? So in your formulation, it would be, look, Pedersen's not scoring, but the power play is doing really well, and the goal isn't to get Pedersen goals, it's to get power play goals, so why not just leave it as it is, right? What, what I'm noticing with the power play, like, I don't think... so. The Canucks have sort of two bread and butter weapons that demand a lot of respect and attention because of what they the damage done in the past. Mm-hmm. When when you think about the Canucks power play, what are the two shots you think about the most? The bumper and I would still still say the Pedersen one timer. Horvat from the bumper, Pedersen one timer. Yeah. Although I think you should put the like Miller skating downhill, picking a corner of his wrist shot in that category as so, well. So so yes, I agree. And there's one other. What's the other one? Like the back door pass to Andre Kuzmenko. Andre Kuzmenko at the back door. He nailed it. Those are the four attempts that really matter for Vancouver's power play. And when you swap Pedersen and Miller, you don't just get rid of two of them. You get rid of three and arguably all four. Now, here's why. Pedersen hasn't scored this year, but he still demands a ton of respect as a shooter. And more importantly... Where Vancouver's power play has actually been at its most dangerous is not with Miller as the signal caller making plays, although he does initiate all of Vancouver's power play movement and is clearly their five-on-four quarterback. It's been Pedersen as a down-low passer, like a passer to down-low spots from his shooting spot. That lane is where the Canucks have been most efficient 
in terms of the percentage of their attempts that they actually convert, right? Their highest volume attempts are Horvat and Pedersen, but their most efficient mm-hmm. shots are secretly that backdoor Kuzmenko tip and the JT Miller downhill wrist shot. Now, you move JT Miller over, you lose JT Miller's downhill wrist shot. And I don't think Pedersen's necessarily as good making the plays for Horvat and the bumper. Like, I think you genuinely are bumping into this issue where Miller's not as good at setting up Kuzmenko, mm-hmm. and Pedersen's not as good at, at setting, setting up, up Horvat. Horvat. He's not as good as at taking the, you know, the the downhill wrist shot as Miller is, and Miller's not as good at one-timing the puck as Pedersen is. So all of a sudden, you've thrown off the calibration entirely. And And look, I don't think you necessarily need to stick with the way that Vancouver's power play. Like, you can make changes that I think would be worthwhile. Like, here, here's one that I'd be interested to see. I'd be interested to see Besser and Pedersen on their one-timer sides mm-hmm. because I do think at the end of the day, the one-through-one works best with two guys on their one-time sides. Miller's so good on his downhill that, like, you sort of forget about it. But Miller would also be a monster in Kuzmenko's spot at the net front. Absolutely. Like, a monster there. You know, like, can you imagine the the way one of the one of the ways that uh, the Canucks power play really became super dangerous once they acquired Tyler Toffoli was that interplay between Miller and Toffoli, Toffoli. setting up Besser Horvath. or sorry, setting, setting up Horvat in the bumper. Yeah. I mean, JT Miller as a down low passing option would be great, and then and then what you can do is bring Pedersen down. Yeah, further. you can have you can have Miller from behind the net feeding Pedersen. Right, right, but also you have to he has to be lower. He's yeah. too high in the zone. At the moment, and it works because he's mostly a playmaking threat. But if you really want Pedersen to score goals, he needs to be a little bit lower because that'll open up options for uh, for your down low passer. So I'm just sort of looking at this and thinking, I wonder if they've overreacted here. This isn't the change that I'd like to see. The change that I'd like to see would be put a righty. And look, maybe it's Kuzmenko. Maybe maybe you want to try Kuzmenko up high and put JT Miller at the net front. But but to me, that's the change that's sensible. Swapping. Miller and Pedersen, it feels like it neuters all four of Vancouver's PP1's best options. And at the end of the day, this team needs their power play to be elite or they're going to look like this. Mm -hmm. It's tough because as good as the power play has been, I've also been an advocate for finding more wrinkles and, and specifically being a little bit more flexible on where the five guys are on the ice at any given point. Now, having said that, They've also obviously they have a formula that works, right? When the five guys are in those those positions, their normal positions, their power play tends to be extremely extremely dangerous. So I don't think you're going to go away from that as your kind of baseline for very long. I do wonder, like long term. Now this conversation is another one that gets changed because JT Miller signed that extension. But like, don't you want ultimately, or wouldn't you hope ultimately for Pedersen to be kind of the key guy on your power play in terms of? handling the puck, distributing, running things, right? Because right now, like, Pedersen does excellent work uh, through the neutral zone to help them get set up. That's really, really important. But once they're set up in the zone, okay, he's the shooting decoy, and sometimes, you know, he makes the pass against the grain to Kuzmenko. But a lot of the action doesn't run through Pedersen on the power play, right? Like, a lot of the times, he's kind of over there on an island, and it's the other four guys making things work on the other side of the ice. And it works, and that's fine. But I do think long-term, that's something I would like to see Pedersen add to his game to be, like, the guy who's the power play threat with the puck on his stick as a shooter, all of it, in a way that he isn't really 
right now, but I think he has the talent to be if he gets those reps in. Yeah, no, I, I don't I don't disagree. I think I think one key is get him lower in the zone, right? Just like sure. Um one thing we've seen is that, for example, the JT Miller downhill wrist shot, if it's taken above the circle, it doesn't go in. If mm. it's taken below the circle, it's a super dangerous shot. And it's like a couple feet, the angles, right? The little minutia, the extra second makes such a massive difference in a stationary attacking game state that, you know, you, you get there and, and a shot that's, you know, 0% becomes 40%, right? And I, I think the key for Pedersen being more involved in what you're talking about, uh, a little bit lower in the zone. Think about think about the Ovechkin spot. It's not very high. No, it's, it's actually it's at a, not like at the blue line. It's actually at a bad angle. Yeah, it is. Stamkos too. That Stamkos one timer that's like nigh unstoppable. It's a bad angle shot. It's just they get really good at hitting it. Think about where Pedersen's taking his shots from. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, that's deeply, deeply um, X's and O's heavy, but maybe too heavy for radio. Maybe, maybe without the video no, highlights, it doesn't so. work. But I don't think so at all. I, I mean, just, I, I just wanted to talk about it. You got to get into the nitty gritty sometimes on it, right? And it it always does feel a little bit funny for me. Now I know they've been struggling recently, but to kind of dive into the X's and O's on the power play because it's typically been like the most reliable part of the Canucks game. But I also think it's one of the most interesting things to talk about because they do have. Like, that's the one place on the team where the pieces really fit, where everyone's playing in a position that makes sense and where everyone's playing in a position where they can really get the most out of their abilities. Uh, speaking of uh, one of the members of that power play, as you said, bread and butter play, feeding Bo Horvat in the bumper spot, and he's become lethal from that spot. I wanted to pass along this note quickly from Elliot Friedman, uh, not in audio form, just in written form, in his latest 32 Thoughts blog on Bo Horvat and what uh, the future holds for Bo Horvat. And an interesting note, which is that he says, one thing I'm hearing is when the, times, the time comes, there's going to be several teams calling that we haven't considered, right? And you always hear, you know, we hear Colorado. I think we hear Minnesota brought up a fair amount. Maybe Boston brought up a fair amount. So, yeah, you can guess that those teams are being are going to be involved. But I do think it's interesting that, you know, just in the last week, Elliot Freeman uh, brought up Seattle. Jeff Merrick yesterday with us brought up Nashville, right? Those are teams that we hadn't necessarily heard linked to Bo Horvat until recently. And now Freeman is suggesting that there's going to be even other teams that we haven't really thought about, haven't really talked about, that are going to get in on the bidding. And, you know, the interesting thing there is is how much, how many of those teams are going to be teams that want Bo Horvat as a rental? How many of them are going to be, you know, we're only interested if there's a potential extension on the table? Uh, but to me, it just drives home again the idea that you've got to cast as, like, you can't fall in love with a specific player. There's going to be lots of teams interested in Bo Horvat. Lots of teams willing to give you value for Bo Horvat. You got to be open to all of these different packages. You got to try to evaluate them, not in, oh, but I love this right-handed defenseman the most, but more in a, what gives us the total value package here? Because you're going to be in a situation, I think, where you can create a bit of a bidding war here. Like, there's going to be lots of teams interested. Don't limit yourself by focusing, getting locked in on, you know, player A or player B. That has to be a part of the return. What's the problem with the bidding war? There's a problem with running a bidding war for Bo Horvath. Is it because of the extension thing? It becomes like a you know three-way conversation between him and his, his no, agent? No, I don't have a problem with that. Um, 
some team might pay you more if they're willing, able to agree to an extension. You might be able to. But sure. I, but I mean, you can also accomplish it with a conditional deal, a la the Matt Duchesne trade, where you just get a conditional pick for if you resign Bo Horvat. I mean, I don't think you need to necessarily get the extension in place or even permit talks. Here's my issue with the bidding war. Takes time. Mm. Like you're, you know, you got to manage the clock with Horvat because Horvat's really good. Horvat helps you too much. That's the problem for me anyway. Like that's why I think you've got to be open to not targeting a right-handed defenseman or a center or a guy in the NHL at all. Like what you what you want to do is take back bad money if you need to. Obviously you prefer to avoid it, but retain if you need to and take futures back. Futures and prospects, guys outside the NHL, guys on reserve lists, not guys on rosters. Help teams make this deal for you quickly. You can hold a bit. I'm not saying don't shop them around. Sure. Yeah. I'm just saying, like, best offer. Well, you have a week. Yeah, exactly. That's I think, it. I think once you get into Move. that, once you internally say, okay, we're go- we're looking for this type of deal, and it's one that most teams can fit because it is futures and not guys, you know, very specific players. Once you get into that mindset, the process of shopping, I think, becomes very quick. Right. But again, this is one of those things where if you're intending on turning this around quickly in a year or two, then what do you need to get for Bo Horvat? The right player who can help you next year or maybe the next the year after that. The right. It's like, who cares? Who cares? Get get a late first. If it's a, if it's a you know, mid first because the team goes out in the first round. Beautiful. Yeah. But like get get a 2023 first plus 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 maybe and move on. And a conditional pick. Plus, plus, plus. And well, I yeah, know, you the, know, the PPP, <laughs> the Peugeot package, premium package, or the Peugeot the premium package. Peugeot right. package plus. We yes. never decided on what we'd call uh, it. I like premium. Um, that's I, li- was, I like plus. That's because it was my idea. Um, <laughs> and I know, uh, you know, on the topic of Horvat, right, and the idea that they're still going to take another run at signing him, we'll see how that goes based on the results of this road trip and all of that. Uh, I know Frank Saravelli, uh, NHL insider, was on with uh, Satin Reach earlier in the week, and he was kind of saying, hey, they have that week off uh, around the All-Star break at the end of January. That kind of makes a lot of sense as a as a contract negotiation. Okay, take your best shot then. Everyone's got a little time on their hands. I understand that. I also think it makes a little bit of sense as a, as a potential time to get serious about trading him, right, and do a lot of the – the behind the scenes uh, networking and talking about value and all of that. So I, I would be looking at that kind of end of January. Like to me, that's a month out from the trade deadline. Would you love to potentially do it a little quicker if you're going to go that way? Sure. But by the way, by that, the way, that, correction, that makes a lot of sense. I got to correct myself. I'm told conditional picks are no longer, uh, oh. you're no, you, you can no longer put them on players resigning. So, okay. So maybe, maybe that's, that's my bad. I'm not usually I'm not usually striking out on stuff like that. I on need the to, CBA, I need to um, get more rest at night. Apparently, anyway, I um, I'm too in the weeds on like historical comparables. I think so. So yeah. Anyway, I, I still think pace and time needs to be a strong consideration with a player as good as Bo Horvat. If you yeah, think, if think you think this team is losing games now, <laughs> I think you can do both though. Like I think you can get really good value and do it relatively quickly. I agree. That's I agree. maybe not tomorrow, but like end of the month well, type and, thing. And I don't think you're going to necessarily get less than full value doing it fast. 
Uh, that's going to do it for us today. I actually, I did want to read this text that came in. Uh, we were talking about our power play talk. It says, so nice to hear you talk about X's and O's hockey. Keep doing it, please. Hockey business is fine, uh, but the analysis of actual hockey is insightful and enjoyable. I mean, first of all, thank you for the compliment. And as I responded in the text in- inbox, I would love to do more of that. I've made this point on the show. I would love to talk more about just the hockey. I- I'd love for it to matter, yeah. Team prevents us from doing that on a uh, on a somewhat regular basis. Uh Thanks for everyone for texting in. Always. Especially those who sent me my errors and omissions. I, I hate to make mistakes, but I appreciate you pointing hey, them out. You got Drance to admit that he was wrong on the radio, so congratulations to everyone who who, uh, who hey, texted in there. I, I also think I need to take my L on this team being uh, better than um, on a better than their record. Oh, boy. So you had uh, the I, Sabres I bet- would outperform the Canucks. You did that with me. And that also- was a good one. That was a good one. No, no, sorry, sorry. You said they wouldn't. I, I had oh, the okay, Sabres okay. outperform the Canucks. And you also but had- I had the Sabres being formidable before the season. Uh, you good. also had Seattle would finish uh, less than five and a half points ahead of them. Ooh, yeah. that's going to lose. Anyways, we got to go. Thanks for listening. It's Sports at 650.